Well, good evening, everyone. My name's Robin Archer, and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband Program here at the London School of Economics. First of all, just I apologise because I've sort of lost my voice, so if, um, if you can't hear me, do please say. But it's really a great pleasure to um, introduce Professor Linda Colley, who's going to tonight give um, the latest in our series of lectures on nations and borders. Now, uh, Professor Colley, as many of you may know, has taught at Cambridge, at Yale, here at the London School of Economics, and she's currently, and for some years, been Professor of History at Princeton University. And I think um, that her writings demonstrate a remarkable capacity to combine the ability to appeal to a very wide public reading audience with fine-grained arguments and richly researched um, uh, claims. And I, I don't propose to go through all of her multiple works tonight, but I do just want to illustrate that by pointing out a couple of her works that many of you may know. Perhaps her best-known work, Britain's, um, a work which I myself refer to uh, many times. Um, this, this book um, on the origins of British national identity won the Wolfson Prize for History, and it's now in its fifth edition, and you, know, you can go to any bookshop and, and buy it. And fast-forwarding through a number of other books, um, one of her more recent books, The Ordeal of Elizabeth Marsh, was one of the uh, top ten New York Times uh, books of the year it was published, 2007. And some of you may have gone to the British Library exhibition that um, Professor Colley curated on taking liberties. Uh, and there, too, there was another volume. Uh, I think some huge numbers of people went to this exhibition, 100,000, some, some large number of people went... Well, her latest um, book combines these same qualities again. And um, if you haven't seen it, there's a, a fellow outside and you can acquire your own personal copy. Um, and and this, this book, Acts of Union and Disunion, was the basis for a Radio 4 series, which, um, which Professor Colley gave uh, recently here at the BBC. Well, it won't have uh, escaped your attention that it's an interesting time to be talking about nations and borders, and not just because of events in Crimea and such faraway places, but right here in the United Kingdom itself, where there's a sort of bubbling and burgeoning debate about Europe. And, of course, the people of Scotland are choosing whether or not to remain in the United Kingdom in just a few months' time. So there could hardly be a better time for us to hear from such a widely acknowledged expert on her topic tonight, which deals with constitutions, Britain and its borders. Professor Colley is going to talk for about 50 minutes, and then after that there's time for about 30 minutes of questions and discussion. So can I ask you to join me in welcoming Professor Linda Colley. Thank you very much. Well, fortunately I'm not losing my voice, or at least not yet. Um, it's a tremendous pleasure to be in the London School of Economics again, um, and it's a very great honour to take part in a Ralph Miliband lecture series uh, and to take part in celebrating, if you like, the memory of such an uh, influential intellectual figure. Uh, the title of my talk is Word Power, written constitutions, and defining British borders. 
The last third of the 18th century witnessed at least two major alterations in the ordering of human society. The first was a quickening pace, of course, of industrial production and knowledge. The second was a wave of political revolutions in the 13 American colonies, France, Haiti, and elsewhere, which, among other things, helped give rise to substantially novel and widely influential written constitutions. In 1786, no country anywhere on the globe possessed a single legal document that it explicitly styled a constitution. By 1820, however, continental Europe alone had generated at least 50 written constitutions. Between 1820 and 1850, over 80 more constitutions were drafted, many of them in Latin America. In the second half of the 19th century, written constitutions spread to some non-Western polities, Japan, Egypt, Tunisia. And by the end of the 20th century, these instruments had become almost universal. In 1991, there were some 170 written constitutions in existence, of which no fewer than 150 had been drafted or revised since the mid-20th century. With only one exception, major exception, no polity has achieved what passes for full democracy without also generating a written constitution. That exception is, of course, here, the United Kingdom, which since the 1650s has never possessed a codified constitution, an absence that's often catered to assertions of unvarying British difference and distinctiveness. So, this evening, I want first to say something about these constitutional border claims. Second, I want to argue that British responses to written constitutions have, over time, been more fractured and shifting than is often supposed, and that this has had international repercussions. Finally, I want to talk, touch on some of the implications of all this for now. Now, from the outset, some in Britain undoubtedly did mis dismiss the new constitutions outright as dangerous and inherently unstable devices. These hostile reactions were promoted by several factors by an association of constitutional experimentation with England's 17th century civil wars, by the influence here of a common law tradition. But it's important to recognise that rejection of written constitutions here and elsewhere were not powered initially merely by chauvinism or conservatism. The idea that unwritten, innate laws were superior to written laws possessed classical and also biblical precedents. Christ's message, 
St. Paul tells the Corinthians, is written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. British and Irish defenders of an unwritten constitution sometimes made similar quasi-mystical claims. Edmund Burke did so, for example, when he famously argued that there was absolutely no need to translate Magna Carta out of the original Latin because people here knew it in their hearts. Uh, And he made this argument quite seriously in Parliament. James Bryce, a brilliant Scots-Irish academic, politician and jurist, advanced similar semi-mystical claims in an influential book published in 1905. Bryce suggested that while the British Constitution could not be expressed in the stiff phrases of a code, a sense of its content naturally evolved among those operating it. This kind of constitution lives by what is called the spirit, Bryce insisted. The letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. Again, a quotation from Corinthians. Rejection of the new constitutions was also made easier by the fact that their two most conspicuous early champions and exponents were both polities with which Britain went to war, first revolutionary America and then revolutionary France. Unsurprisingly, therefore, considerable efforts were devoted during these conflicts to representing the new constitutional devices as being themselves alien and unsuited to Britain. One manifestation of this British counter-offensive was the growing use here of the phrase paper constitution, paper constitution, to re-describe and denounce constitutions of the US, but much more the revolutionary (laughs) French variety. Apparently coined in the early 1780s and in regular use from the 1790s, paper constitution continued to be deployed in British parliamentary speeches, newspapers and books, almost invariably in a negative manner until at least the 1970s. Paper constitutions were like paper money, argued the historian and Whig politician Lord Macaulay, trashy substitutes for real gold. And of course the whole phrase paper constitution plays on notions of fragility as well as a kind of counterfeit element. And initially this was, I think, quite an effective put-down because remember that initially so-called paper constitutions weren't very successful. Of course, the US Constitution endured. Arguably, it's endured too long. But France went through a great many constitutions, so, of course, did many of the new Latin American nations. So paper constitution for a long time worked. And even when the conclusion 
of the American Civil War in 1865 demonstrated that a major power possessed of a written constitution could remain formidable and united, and that a written constitution could endure. Expressions of scepticism here persisted, and again, not just among conservatives. Far from being manifestations of the popular will and shields against undue executive power, some critics contended, written constitutions were usually the work of small elites, intellectuals, lawyers, unelected judges, career politicians, and once in existence might be difficult for the generality of a country's people to amend. Thus, in 1884, a Scottish liberal journalist argued that the powers of the supreme democratic legislature of the United Kingdom are limited by no paper constitution, since it was ultimately dependent on the voice of the people, this writer went on, Westminster was free and obliged to modify Britain's domestic workings whenever the needs and aspirations of this fast-changing society demanded it. Britain's unwritten and therefore plastic constitution, so this kind of argument went, was part of what made it a supremely modern as well as a stable state. Undoubtedly, then, there has been a long tradition of some British commentators invoking national exceptionalism and self-regard to resist any prospect of written constitutions here and to other these devices elsewhere. Whereas a growing number of states in every continent have employed a written constitution to help invent and advertise an idea of themselves, in the case of the UK, it has been the absence of a written constitution that has often been invoked to serve a distinguishing function. In other words, this discourse about constitutions, written and unwritten, um, has become, has been a kind of legal and rhetorical reinforcement here of political borders. Yet for all this, responses to written constitutions here have been neither uniform nor consistent nor static. Made up of words and easily translated into any written language, the new constitutions crossed borders and oceans easily and swiftly by way of print, which was a prime reason why this political instrument proliferated so spectacularly. Given the precocious breadth of Britain's own print networks, its inhabitants were in a privileged position to, to acquire information about the new constitutions from very early on. Just five weeks after the first printed version of the US federal constitution was released 
to limited numbers of the American public on September the 17th, 1787, extracts from it were circulating in most English and Scottish newspapers. Subsequent written constitutions from different continents invariably received wide British press coverage and discussion. Uh, Indeed, until I started this project, I had no idea that Victorian newspapers devoted so much time to other countries' constitutions. Um, I have this sense that, you know, desperate editors sort of in need of something to fill columns would say, oh, thank God, a new Romanian constitution. (laughs) Slap it on the first page. Um, But, you know, this is actually really important. Historians and political scientists have never properly investigated this point. Yet the impact of persistent reportage about constitutions elsewhere on political ideas and language within Britain itself was sometimes very important. When, for instance, the Liberal Prime Minister, uh, the great William Gladstone, formulated his Home Rule Bills for Ireland in the 1880s and 1890s, He not only drew on federal ideas from the United States, he also took up federal information from the recent Austrian constitution, uh, the recent Canadian constitution. Indeed, Britain's state papers has a better collection of the world's written constitutions than any other source. So whatever the politicians do about written constitutions here... They certainly, over the centuries, acquire lots of information about these instruments elsewhere. There were other reasons, too, why written constitutionalism seemed less than straightforwardly alien here, despite the rhetoric and the discourse. It's sometimes argued that the doctrine of the Westminster Parliament's sovereignty made written constitutions a clear non-starter in Britain from the outset. But while assertions of Westminster's sovereignty certainly became more strident from the 18th century, there remained for a long time no consensus, even at elite level, over how far such claims were or were not compatible with external limitations on executive power. One early 20th century Oxford jurist claimed that as late as the 1880s, even educated men in Britain were slow to admit that Parliament has constitutionally a right to make any new law it pleases, to repeal any law, or to change or abolish any law. Moreover, Britain possessed its own versions of a kind of paper constitutionalism, a kind of paper constitutionalism. There was a long tradition of domestic and colonial charters, and there were iconic constitutional texts like the Bill of Rights, habeas corpus, and the Treaty of Union with Scotland in 1707, the preamble of which proclaimed it as being forever after unalterable, even by Westminster. Most of all, of course, there was Magna Carta, 
which was sometimes represented as a prototype written constitution. It wasn't, of course, but that's how it seems to have been quite often imagined. Magna Carta, wrote one Victorian journalist, could be regarded as a sort of written constitution, nothing more than the verbal expression of the most urgent political wants of the age. Together with their past experience of colonial and domestic charters and the existence of other iconic constitutional texts, such interpretations of Magna Carta seem to have allowed some Britons, some Britons, to view the new written constitutions not as suspect foreign paper innovations, but rather as younger sister texts to Britain's own constitutional canon. Well into the 19th century, books were being issued on both sides of the Atlantic, combining within the same set of covers the texts of the US federal constitution, various continental European constitutions, and the text of Magna Carta, as though these were somehow analogous political documents. It's therefore misleading, I think, and overly narrowing to approach past British thinking and mass beliefs solely in terms of an unwritten constitution. Indeed, before the 1860s, the phrase unwritten constitution would have appeared to some in this society inappropriate and even incomprehensible. Computer searches of British parliamentary debates and newspapers reveal hardly any use of the phrase unwritten constitution before the mid-19th century and it remained intermittent at Westminster and in the press until the 1870s. Like much else in this state, the subsequent more explicit, often celebratory, and often conservative cult of Britain's unwritten constitution was something of a late Victorian invented tradition. And even the more pronounced constitutional exceptionalism that developed in Britain from the late 19th century onwards was not straightforward. Mounting anxiety from the 1860s about Britain's global primacy helped to foster arguments that this country should itself adopt a more proactive, tutelary role in the accelerating surge elsewhere towards new constitution writing. And one consequence of this was a different kind of constitutional writingness here, which had both domestic and foreign implications. Because increasingly from the 1860s, uh, intellectuals, politicians, thinkers in Britain tend to say, well, look, how, 
how can we market our political system overseas? Other countries are increasingly adopting written constitutions, which can be distributed in print, so other people know what those countries' systems are. But how are people going to know what our system is? And is there a risk that countries like Japan or Germany or the United States that are fast-evolving written constitutions will overtake us as a political model. And this is part of the background, I think, to an enormous surge in constitutional history writing uh, and in constitutional text writing in this country from the 1860s. And, of course, Badgett's English constitution of the 1860s fits absolutely in this pattern. One of the things that Badgett is doing in that book is to argue that the constitutional system here is not, in fact, sui generis. It can be quite easily understood, and therefore other places can adopt part of it. Uh, And the number of... I actually checked this in on the computer, uh, the, the endless possibilities of engram, um, and the number of titles with constitutional history in them go up about tenfold uh, in the last four decades of the 19th century here. In other ways, too, and as some commentators recognised, British actors did seek increasingly to influence the form and spread of written constitutions, but elsewhere. The truth is, declared the great jurist A.V. Dicey in 1900 in an Oxford University lecture on comparative constitutions, that the constitutions of every civilised nation are at present copies though often poor copies, of the British Constitution. This was manifestly inaccurate, but that Dicey wanted to make this grandiose assertion requires consideration. Claims about Britain's influence on constitutions outside its own domestic borders derived in large part, though never entirely, from the connections that have always existed between written constitutions on the one hand and varieties of empire on the other. These connections are now often forgotten. Because the emergence of written constitutions was so closely bound up with major revolutions, And because so many of the constitutions now in existence are post-war creations in one-time European colonies or in former Soviet satellites, there is a natural tendency, I think, to view these texts as being inextricably linked to nationalism, to self-government and to democracy. But this is only part of the story. From the late 18th century onwards, written constitutions have also often served as organising tools for different kinds of overseas and overland empires. The United States would be a case in point, this 
network of federal and increasingly state constitutions which accompanies the spread of westward expansion, linking these new territories together with Washington and in the process uh, until the end of the 19th century, excluding blacks, excluding Native Americans, grabbing land. Or think of the written constitutions of Napoleonic France, Uh, Written constitutions are one of Bonaparte's favourite instruments of dominion. Uh, They're ways in which he organises his growing European empire. He often drafts them himself. Or think of the great Spanish constitution of Cadiz of 1812. Uh, One of the reasons for this constitution, which in many ways was very liberal, but was also to try and cement together, and of course it doesn't work, Spain itself and its vast Spanish-American empire. Or think of the Brazilian constitution of the 1820s, the longest lasting of the 19th century Latin American constitutions, made by the Brazilian emperor, who also drafts a constitution for Portugal. Or think of the earliest big Asian written constitution, the Meiji Constitution of Japan in the 1880s, again an imperial constitution which is used subsequently to legitimise Japanese expansion into territories like Korea. Such imperial uses of written constitutions persisted into the 20th century. Thus, the most extensively ratified constitution in world history was that promulgated by Stalin in 1936, which was ratified by over 50 million people and was designed to help cement together and burnish the Soviet empire. British domestic and colonial elites, too, always recognised that written constitutions might possess imperial uses as well as posing radical challenges. As Frederick Madden, David Fieldhouse, John Darwin and others have documented at length, the rate at which constitutions were written partly or wholly by state actors in Britain for different parts of its empire and occasionally for other territories, quickened from the 1780s, increased exponentially after 1840, and reached a climax between the Second World War and the 1970s, when London became increasingly busy drafting constitutions and ultimately bills of rights for British colonies as a prelude to recognising their independence. Already in 1951, a British lawyer was able to boast that there are in all something like 70 separate constitutions in the Commonwealth and most of them were made in Britain. The rate of British constitution writing for one-time colonies increased faster after this, though as had been the case before the Second World War, British constitution writing was not confined only 
to imperial spaces. British state actors were involved in drafting the post-war German constitution, working in alliance with the Americans. They also had an impact, more than some Americans would have liked, on the evolution of the 1947 Japanese constitution. So how did members of the British political class reconcile this extensive experience of manufacturing new constitutions for locations overseas with a growing celebration of an organic and unwritten constitution at home and with the criticisms that they often displayed towards other nations' paper constitutions. In rationalising their own overseas exercises in constitutional design, successive British governments were helped by the fact that many, not all, but many of the written constitutions for which they were responsible were colonial constitutions. As such, these texts almost invariably contained a focus on the British monarch of the day and could therefore be distinguished from the explicitly transformative, often republican, written constitutions of which London was often critical. In addition, and though sometimes more innovative and democratic than is commonly imagined, British colonial constitutions tended to be studiously pragmatic in style and format. High-flown language was abhorred, and so, until the 1960s, were bills of rights for colonial subjects. This latter omission was, of course, partly prompted by imperial self-interest and coerciveness. But in addition and as a British official recorded in the 1960s, such undertakings, bills of rights, were long viewed by London as, quote, a feature of the constitutions of continental and other countries. As this comment suggests, the degree to which British actors sometimes exhibited a certain self-consciousness in the face of possible accusations that they were manufacturing their own paper constitutions, in fact, could be quite marked. It is possibly no accident, indeed I suspect it is no accident, that most British colonial constitutions were not, in fact, inscribed on paper. They were put, rather, on vellum or parchment, traditional materials that were also organic, made out of goat or scarf or sheepskin. Uh, again, one can see this sort of attentiveness to matters constitutional, uh, to map out boundaries, to try and demarcate what is different about official Britain. At 
Accusations that London's busy constitution writing for overseas locations was hard to reconcile with its resistance to written constitutions at home were also sometimes resisted, however, by turning them on their head. Rome and England are the two states whose constitutions have had the greatest interest for the world, wrote James Bryce. Yet, he went on, there was in strictness no Roman constitution. There is no British constitution. The fact that Britain lacked its own written constitution while actively writing constitutions for others was, according to this view, not a paradox or an inconsistency at all but rather one more demonstration of this country's political maturity and confident power. I'm not saying this is true. I'm saying this is how it was rationalised. Other striving societies might require written constitutions, and if so, Britain was peculiarly equipped to aid them in part because it required no such aids and contrivances itself. A British politician made essentially this boast in the 1960s. We in Britain have no constitution of our own, he told an audience in Malta after signing off on yet another colonial constitution there, but we have quite a lot of experience of writing constitutions for other people. The degree to which countries across the world wanted or were obliged to allow London to draft constitutions on their behalf only confirmed, according to this view of things, how privileged and satisfactory the British were in their existing uncodified arrangements at home. Such attitudes have not completely disappeared. In 2006, a legal advisor attached to the Foreign Office was dispatched to Baghdad to assist in the reviewing of the new Iraq Constitution. I subsequently asked her how she reconciled helping to shape another country's constitution with coming herself from a polity that possessed no codified constitution of its own. This is how she replied. The benefit of not having a written UK constitution was that we, the British, have a higher degree of pragmatism in our approach to constituting to constitution drafting than would otherwise be the case. We have a good sense of what is appropriate in a particular context and fully recognise that different systems work for different populations. This lawyer was young as well as very talented, so I was particularly intrigued by how perfectly she had internalised a line of argument which one can see being deployed by British officials back in the 19th century. 
namely that Britain's lack of a written constitution renders it more, not less qualified to design and craft the political systems of others. In recent decades, however, as you all know, there has been a greater emphasis in Britain on domestic constitutional activism. A new Supreme Court has been created in London. The Human Rights Act has been incorporated into British legal systems, at least for the moment. Devolution has been implemented and seems likely to be extended, irrespective of the results of the coming Scottish referendum. There have been attempts at further reforms of the House of Lords and calls for a new Bill of Rights and more. These innovations have many causes, but one underlying reason for them is arguably the contraction of Britain's capacity to intervene across the globe in constitutional terms as in other respects. The historic and mutually reinforcing combination of busy constitution writing abroad with resistance to constitutional activism on the domestic front has largely ceased to operate. Lacking overseas distractions and faced with an ever larger, more diverse and less deferential home population, British constitutional innovations are likely in the future to focus much more on the domestic. And in the last chapter of my recent book, Acts of Union and Disunion, as some of you may know, I sort of took off my historian's hat for a while and proffered some suggestions as to constitutional ideas and projects that might, I thought, usefully be played with in the future. Uh, and I stress that none of these are uh, original to me. Um, other people have talked about them too. Like others, I took note of the lack of symmetry created by the devolution measures of the 1990s, whereby Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland each have their own assembly or parliament or quasi-parliamentary institution, but not England. Uh, and I suggested that it might therefore be appropriate uh, and certainly would curb a great deal of resentment if there could be a new English parliament or assembly, perhaps situated in the north of England, uh, given that it seems to me north-south tensions in England uh, are becoming increasingly serious. Second, I suggested, if England did join Northern Ireland, Scotland and Wales in gaining its own parliament or assembly, then the UK might well want to work out a more openly federal system. In that case... The Westminster Parliament could remain as an arena for determining major cross-border issues such as foreign policy, defence, macroeconomic cl strategy, cl 
climate control, etc. But a great deal of power, decision-making and taxation would be devolved to the four national parliaments and to local and regional authorities. Third, I suggested, because why not suggest, a more federal United Kingdom would be likely to need a written constitution or at least some kind of new charter of confederation. As I made quite clear in my book, and I make it clear again, um, these are mere private proposals. And while there is likely to be some constitutional changes in the near future, I have no great optimism that any of these particular measures will be implemented. Certainly, and in the words of the late Lord Bingham, to substitute the sovereignty of a codified and entrenched constitution for the sovereignty of Parliament would be a major constitutional change, which should be made only if the British people, properly informed, choose to make it. But part of the rub here is that phrase and point, properly informed. As I have sought to suggest this evening, the degree to which discourses about British constitutional exceptionalism have been used to forge and cement and invent borders can easily, in fact, get in the way of a proper understanding of the real diversity of constitutional ideas, practices and histories in these islands. Part of the work of constitutional reform and renovation in the future should therefore ideally consist of encouraging a more nuanced, a more comprehensive and more accurate awareness of the complexities and uneven development of constitutional thought and constitutional actions here in the past. Thank you very much. Okay, well, we've got a, a nice chunk of time for questions now. Um, if you came in late again, I apologise for my voice. Um, so, uh, would you like to indicate if someone would like to... Yes, that woman in the back. Thank you. Um, oh, could you just say who you are and where yes, you're from? Yes, sir. Yeah. Peter Colcass. Um, no affiliation. Uh, um, I'm particularly interested in the subject, having grown up in Scotland, but now having lived half my life in England. Um, are written constitutions at risk of becoming merely an academic exercise now um, when so much of the debate and discourse around raising the, you know, the sort of passion around borders and what borders mean to people and what national identity means is done through social media and done through grassroots, um, where it's, it's very much about iconic imagery, about people, about personalities. 
about the flag and symbolism. What does the written constitution then mean to a nation if they're formed through an uprising rather than through, <coughs> sorry, rather than through a sort of parliamentary top-down process? Could you comment on the sort of symbolism versus sure. short words? Um, um, yeah, I mean, I think you raise uh, important points there. Um, uh, clearly, um, there has to be a constant reinvention of this device. As you say, why written constitution? Uh, in a sense, they evolved and flourished and spread as quickly as they did, as I pointed out, through print. So what do you do with these devices and how do you redesign them in a post-print world? What, what should a written constitution be now. Um, and I think that's an interesting technological point. I also think that you have to work out how to get people to feel they have an investment in these texts. Um, I mean, where South Africa was moving towards uh, the end of apartheid, um, you know, they distributed brochures saying, um, what is a constitution? And asking for, se for suggestions about what should go into it and so forth. Um, so, you know, there's various things you can do. But why do we still need some kind of device like that? Well, partly if you want to create some overmighty, or not overmighty, that's the wrong word, but overweening legislation, which cannot be simply altered by Parliament like any other legislation. You need to embed it somewhere. Um, and that's one of the things that written constitutions can do. They can create a kind of special level of law, and they can prescribe, therefore, uh, with greater effectiveness, if they're good, uh, effective working limitations on potential executive abuses and excesses. Though, of course, a lot depends on the quality of the Constitution and how, if at all, they are implemented. These are not magic bullets. What else they can do, I think, is um, written constitutions, if they're good, uh, are more, much more than car manuals. Um, they can create a kind of constitutive story. You can use them to set out um, a set of values, uh, points of union, uh, agreed principles, <laughs> ideals. Um, you don't need to have a constitution to do that, but I think some kind of sort of post-print charter document statement of ideals. Uh, I don't think we should be assuming that these are out of date, even though print is. Yes, please around I'm a former member of Parliament for Welsh constituency and also sat in the Scottish Parliament, so I'm very interested in these issues. Um, don't you think that we've really got to, your, your foreign office lawyer in Baghdad, I think, had a very uh, valid point um, about the high degree of pragmatism that we developed 
and basically we got into an entrenched habit of uh, making incremental additions or changes. When only has mentioned the recent Silk Commission for the Welsh Assembly, and again Gordon Brown's intervention in the Scottish independence debate just two days ago, when he was talking about what has been referred to glibly as Devo Max of increasing the Scottish Parliament's parts, which I think will happen irrespective mm, of the I result. Agree. The result's likely to be no, 5743 at the moment. But um, even with that, even though that's a considerable no vote, there is likely to be a change. And, and so I think that process is likely to continue. And the English have so, shown so far no desire for, uh, for um, uh, devolution at all in the regions as Labour trying to encourage them to, to show an interest. That's the, main, that's the main one. The second one's a bit more mischievous, and that really comes out of the events of the last 36 hours and the position of the constitutional monarch, which again, of course, is something that is established by convention. And in the debate over the legal decision, which is still not, of course, now going to the Supreme Court over Prince Charles's letters, and it's a very important uh, decision, um, basically, the, um, the debate is very, very confused that the conventions that apply to the Queen, which one might say the Queen has established over an extremely long reign, do not apply to the Prince of Wales. But what will he like, will he be like when he becomes monarch? Do you see that kind of uh, dispute, which is obviously going to come, or likely to come more and more into the public arena, actually, again, to result in legislation, possibly, of limitation, limiting the monarch's role and define much more clearly what a constitutional monarch is. Well, um, how can I answer that? Um, on Monday, I was actually in Cardiff uh, lecturing to the Welsh Centre for Governance and talking to various uh, Welsh Assembly members there. So, of course, they had rather different per perceptions. Um, I think this pragmatism thing, uh, one's got to be a bit careful because part of what I was talking about this evening is the way that these notions, these constitutional stories, which we assume have always applied, are partly a product of invention. They are fabricated. Um, and this idea of invariable British pragmatism, um, I'm not sure it necessarily is historically so. I think it's been a much more uneven record than that. But why might um, a purely pragmatic and ad hoc approach begin to be unsatisfactory? Well, I think growing numbers of people are finding it unsatisfactory. These issues have come up more and more since the 1970s. And I think if you're not careful, it does become more and more untidy. If you're going to give more and more devolution to Scotland, which I agree will happen, and to Wales, and who knows what's going to happen in Northern Ireland, what are going to be the threads that keep this increasingly unwieldy unit uh, together? Because every time you give more devolution to Scotland, more devolution to Wales. People will say, okay, well, we want fewer Welsh and Scottish MPs at Westminster. 
So Westminster ceases increasingly to be a British Parliament. It becomes what many in Wales and Scotland think it is already, mainly an English Parliament. But you've got this situation without any kind of worked out federal system. Uh, so I do think at some point, and of course it's very difficult and contentious, how do you mobilise a consensus about this? And anyway, politicians always have too much to do. Um, but you will increasingly, I think, get a, a lot of loose ends and a somewhat ramshackle quality. And I think you do need to think at some point, well, what is the cement? Uh, what is this union for? Um, do we need a new act of union or a new charter of union or some kind of statement of intent? Or do we just let this drift on and on and on? I don't know. But I think there's a problem there. Um, as to the monarchy, um, yes, I mean, of course, uh, I, I mean, I, I think this argument that, um, uh, this extraordinary argument that you, you can't see the Prince of Wales' letters because it's important that he be above party. Hello? Well, you know, uh, you know, presumably the problem with the letters is that he's making clear that he has quite strong political opinions. Um, so there's a sort of circularity there. Um, so, yes, um, I think it would be nice to have... Uh, a department of the crown or some kind of um, more more clear parameters here. Okay, yes, this statement here um, with the orange, sorry. Um, in continental Europe, uh, sorry, Nico Heller, um, in continental Europe, uh, the UK is very often an increasing accused of being kind of practicing an exceptionalism. Some of that might be tied to sort of a constitutional acceptability, a kind of constitutional awareness or tradition, but that's not perceived in those terms on the continent because, of course, lack of written constitution also means lack of transparency and what might be very clear to the English or the British is not clear to the Germans or the French because they simply can't look it up. They can't read the constitution and say, oh, okay, Brits can't do this because the constitution says they can. In Germany, there are many other ways for things have to be referred to the constitutional court. Nobody would talk of conceptionalism. Oh, sorry, exceptionalism there. It's just a normal process. In the UK, it's immediately seen as exceptionalism when they can't do something. Um, how do you think the relation between the EU and the UK you know, could be improved, say, through a written British constitution? On the one hand, and on the other hand, do you think that the kind of constitutional movement in the EU um, might at some point force the UK to actually have a written constitution, if only to have a sort of, a, if you like, a document to set against the European document? Yeah. Um, I think, and you know, I repeat, I, I, I work most of my career in the United States, so I have no... Um, rosy illusions about written constitutions. Um, you know that Jefferson was probably right when he said that if you have them, they should be remade on a regular basis because uh, otherwise they can constrict or cease working. 
But it does seem to me that one of the great arguments in support of a written constitution or some kind of defined constitutional text, which may be available online or on Facebook or whatever, is that you give ordinary citizens, so-called, a way of getting access to the architecture of his or her state. Uh, You can call them up online. You can go and borrow them from the library. Uh, You can buy a copy. Um, You can't do that in the UK. Nobody can go to a library and say, "Um, I'd like a copy of the United Kingdom Constitution, please. Uh, I mean, it is written down, but it's written down in a lot of different places and only experts and lawyers, uh, and not even they, uh, can, can make sense of it. So I think the in, you know, there is, as you suggest, a great informational aid uh, and a civic aid in having some kind of text. But the European implications, yes, uh, are enormous. I mean, one of the uh, arguments I just dropped in uh, Acts of Union and Disunion is that I'm not Eurosceptic. But if you are a, Euro, a British Eurosceptic, you might well think that a written constitution here would be a good innovation because then you would feel a greater sense of definition about what are national powers and limits and uh, issues as distinct from the EU. I think paradoxically for all its, uh, or perhaps it isn't a paradox, um, that the UK is often seems is shrill about the EU, but is also in some ways extraordinarily porous to its legislation because it doesn't have its own codified constitution. Um, And to that extent, I think uh, it's not just that European trends, as you mentioned, might have repercussions here, but uh, I think that some kind of codified constitution here, if it ever came to be, might ease some of this brittleness about the EU. over campaigning of five to seven years, 
Um, and perhaps more importantly, one of the points you made was when you have a, a change to the Constitution, you must have the agreement of the people. Absolutely. Now, Charter 88 was a central demand of that. And it had a charity alongside it. Originally, the Charter 88 Trust, which became the Starman Trust with George Chair. After Lord Starman, who was a great supporter of Charter 88, along with a lot of other members, who are now members of the House of Lords, who have completely, completely forgotten this campaign for 10 years. Um, and as I said, it, it's depressing. It's depressing in one sense that this seven to ten year history has been forgotten. On the mm. democracy side, um, in terms of popular input, we experimented with citizens' juries, with consensus conferences, deliberative polls, deliberative referenda, a whole host of democratic um, participation completely gone. You won't hear the current Labour Party talking about this, let alone the Mid Dems, let alone the Tories. Completely forgotten, completely gone. Um, there's a central plan that people's participation had to go along with a written constitution. Um, and as I said, I'm elated in one sense to have been associated with that, but depressed that it's now forgotten. I don't think it. I mean, you know, I think that I think getting people excited about matters constitutional is always hard. Uh, particularly, and that, this was partly what I was talking about this evening, looking at the long history, I didn't mean to leave out Charter 88 because it isn't important as for the reasons you say, it was very important uh, and it, you know it, it, if I may say, illustrates my point about the diversity of British constitutional experience and arguments which is often ironed out and forgotten um, but, you know, one has to sort of keep going at it and there is this dreadful discourse of constitutional exceptionalism that people here aren't interested, it's alien to who we are, we're pragmatists, we make constitutions for other people, but we don't need them ourselves. Uh, I mean, partly that was what I was wanting to skewer in my talk and explain how this evolved and set out some of these paradoxes. Um, but I don't think Charter 88 has been forgotten and I think its work was very valuable um, one must keep on, on very quickly very quickly Charter 88 was formed in response to the excesses of Margaret Thatcher and executive power that's what initiated it when the Blair government committed to reform it went on for time, went back to executive power exactly. It was not difficult to get people interested in constitutional... Dr. found it was not difficult to get people interested. What was lacking was the political will. Yeah, OK. okay. Um, I'm just going to take this in on the first week. I'll just say <coughs> to the audience that we've had a number of people who are experts or former parliamentarians asking questions, and that's great. 
but if you're just a student or you're interested in asking Professor Colin, please don't hesitate to ask yourself. Um, but first of all, I have this person over here. I'm Mike Herring. Um, I'm not an expert at all. Um, is it possible to uh, set up a written constitution without empowering the judiciary to the extent that it seems to be the case in America? On the whole, I wouldn't swap our guys in the Supreme Court for the guys over there in the Supreme Court. And I certainly wouldn't want the you know, 100 million pound battles to confirm the Conservative Party nominee instead of someone else. Yeah, um, I think the US Supreme Court, which of course evolved uh, after the written constitution in America and uh, in ways that no one really anticipated, um, I agree, it's become a kind of mini and much more powerful House of Lords almost. Uh, so you certainly wouldn't want that. Um, and I do think, while I don't agree with a lot of the arguments that have always been levelled against written constitutions, there is one argument which you can see really from the American anti-federalists in the 1780s onwards, which is how do you stop these from being elite devices? Uh, how much do we gain if it's just, as you said, judges getting together, lawyers getting together, uh, producing a document which only they can really understand uh, and, and basically becoming much more powerful in the state. Um, so how do, you, how do you give it a popular dimension? How do you get ordinary people, um, it isn't too difficult, but it is a challenge, how do you get ordinary people to feel that it is their constitution rather than something which, again, only uh, the experts, uh, the elite, the judges, uh, the legally articulate can, can understand? Um, and I think that that's something that is difficult, which is uh, why I mentioned what I think was a very impressive grassroots initiative in South Africa, where they did circularise people saying, you know, this is what a constitution is, what would you <coughs> like to be in your constitution, and things like that. And um, they're, they're, they've tried various things in Iceland recently to, to try and get... Uh, different kinds of constituencies represented in the Constitutional Convention. But there, there is a problem here. I mean, there is no Camelot. Uh, all political solutions are fallible. But I think, I think one can watch out for it. And I don't see that one has to end up with anything like the US Supreme Court. Okay. Um, <coughs> I think the student was next, and then the student will be Yes, It's always struck me the reason that the American Constitution worked so long is they assumed that everybody was um, power hungry, awful people, and knew people power they got to be prevented in some way limited music. Another reason the EU hasn't worked is they didn't work on the basis that we're all power hungry models achieve our own ends. But they have a vision of something perfect, we're all going to try and make it happen. And so 
concerns about the, the current way of thinking is that if we try to set up a constitution now, we very much buy into the system that if we create one provision, um, we'll make it come, come, come to fruition. And it's not acceptable to talk about the negative. We've got to get the positive enough. And that, um, that's my concern is if we start creating a constitution now, uh, it, it, you're not allowed to assume the worst about people. And that's the reason I think the Constitution of America worked. They assumed the worst. And it was trying to make sure people didn't abuse power. I think the... Um It's an interesting perspective. I think, more basically, one of the reasons why the US Constitution has survived, again, arguably too long, is that it's very short. There's a lot that it doesn't cover, which is either a strength or a weakness. But, you know, if you, if you look at the US Constitution, there's nothing there about political parties. There's a lot that it does not say, and, and therefore it allows for a lot of freedom of maneuver. Um, your point about that this is one of the things that written constitutions must deal with, the, the lust for power, the concern with executive overdrive. Uh, yes, I agree. Um, and it's actually one of the reasons, again, why I find it strange some ways where people say, oh, well, we don't want the EU to get a federal constitution. Well, actually, a proper federal constitution in the EU, which provided strict limits on what its officials could do, uh, might be a good thing. Um, so, you know, I, I think a, a constitution does, if it's to work have to be upfront about this, uh, that, of course, human beings who go into politics uh, like power. And, of course, there's always been uh, a debate, well, how... I mean, James Madison said, well, you know, how, how do we curb power? Because, in the end, these are only parchment barriers. Um, and, as we all know, uh, the number of written constitutions which have been pushed aside by dictators or exploited by dictators or, as I described, by empires, is very great. So none of these things absolutely guarantee you um, just and fair government and restraints on the executive. But I agree with you that they should be up front and anticipate these challenges of uh, curbing undue executive power and defining uh, its limits. Right, I think uh, this gentleman here with the book. Thank you very much. Uh, you mentioned Iraq. Robin Hannah, LAD Bank Donor. You mentioned Iraq. The other country in or happening is in Afghanistan. Was there any attempt or is any attempt to draw up a constitution for Afghanistan? I, I, I don't, I better want I did my. Um, I'm afraid all I can say is I have no idea. Um, 
I haven't uh, heard of any such initiative. Um, if there was to be any such initiative, I don't think there has been, uh, I would assume that it would come from the United States. Uh, certainly in Iraq, uh, the British contribution to the not very successful Iraq constitution was uh, a very subsidiary one to the main American in introduction of it. Um, and in fact, there's been uh, you, you can you can see the the shift in um, the dynamics on the two sides of the Atlantic. Whereas for the German post-war constitution, it was very much uh, a sort of Anglo-American sort of peer creation, uh, with the British and the Americans both playing major parts. Uh, subsequent to that. American initiative has tended to be much greater in any joint constitution writing, though um, the uh, British are still occasionally uh, drafting um, colonial constitutions or imperial constitutions. They produced one for the Falkland Islands uh, a few years ago. But there's not many parts of the world left that they can do that for. Yeah. I think that gentleman. I just wanted to take up this question about the Constitution being a tool of domination. And you raised that in the context of a colonial environment, and I'm sure that's true. But isn't that really a special case of a more general form of domination? namely the domination of the present over the future, perhaps in that case the past over the present. Let's imagine a constitution where a fully informed public has democratically agreed to it. Nevertheless, what that public is claiming to do is to freeze in place certain provisions that they judge to be important and to give themselves greater rights over, a greater say over that, than a future generation will be able to do. You can see in a colonial environment they feel it's slipping away, they want to freeze it the victors over Germany want to put that in place and so on. But why should we as a democratic polity want to give our voice greater weight than the voice of a future member of our polity? It seems to me there's a contradiction there between democracy and constitutionalism and that might be a leftist criticism that needs to be addressed. Well obviously most of the imperial constitutions I mentioned were occurred in advance of complete democracy. That said, I think there is a derigist aspect to written constitutions, uh, and perhaps that ties up with what I said earlier about the elitist component that becomes visible really from the start, and I suppose the great exhibitor of that would be someone like Rousseau. Um, who talks about the importance of the general will, uh, the need to uh, find a written expression for the general will, to the will of the nation and so forth, and of course does himself draft an amateur constitution for Corsica uh, on their invitation. But Rousseau then sort of after having talked about the wonderfulness of the general will, uh, then sort of says, well, but the problem is, how will the people know what to do? Because they're 
they won't necessarily all be very bright, and obviously I'm paraphrasing here. Um, and so he invents this creature, the lawmaker, and he wheels the lawmaker onto the political stage as someone who is going to take the lead, to make sure that this document will indeed be right. Um, and I think that that's a... He, so he summons up the problem from the beginning. And, and if you look at even quite democratic Latin American 19th century constitutions, and one of the things that we're learning about these 19th century Latin American constitutions, which have often been the subject of um, ridicule outside Latin America because they were changed so often, uh, and they were in most parts of independent Latin America change very often. And therefore they've not been regarded much. But in fact many of these constitutions really were very democratic. Uh, democratic way before Western Europe, though obviously they excluded women, one takes that for granted. Um, but some of these quite democratic Latin American constitutions, they're also very derisist and prescriptive. They, they try to create moral reformation. You know, um, in order to be a citizen, you must learn to read. Uh, every year there'll be a procession. Um, you will write down your name on the citizen's book. Um, people who've been decent citizens for five years will wear a star. Uh, you know, it's, it, it's this sort of sense of how can you use these documents to create civic and moral reformation. Um, and obviously Stalin is thinking in those terms in 1936. So, uh, yes, we don't in any way have to have this derisious component, but I do think that temptation has been there. Uh, and, and this idea of a kind of master plan uh, is one that's always... I, I mean, if you look at the preamble of the current Chinese constitution, for example, it's a very interesting piece of... Um, would we call it thought control? I don't know. I mean, it, lots of democracy, but again, uh, a certain interpretation of what China is about uh, and how, how the different parts of it are to think of themselves. So these can be quite, um, as I say, derisious documents, I think. John Strafford, uh, author of Our Fight for Democracy. Ms. Colleague, um, you said that uh, all countries in the world that have moved to full democracy um, have done so with written constitutions with the exception of the UK. No, most. Most, most major. Most. Yeah. yeah. But, but the implication is that you think that the UK has got a full democracy. And I will put it to you uh, that that is not the case. Uh, that uh, with a legislature in the House of Lords uh, which is unaccountable and unelected by the people uh, where the monarch sees legislation in draft before it goes to Parliament, so it should veto it, uh, where in 2005 a Labour government was elected uh, with a 66 majority in Parliament, when only 22% of the electorate voted for it, uh, where uh, the European Union 
uh, you, uh, people cannot vote for their representatives, they can only vote for a party, so they can't get rid of their representatives. Uh, where we've got the Westphalian question, etc., etc., etc. There are so many fault lines in our democracy that it's actually <coughs> now a sham, and it's something that the political elite have tried to put over that we are democratic when we're not. The people have understood this, uh, which is why they stopped stopping voting. Uh, and sooner or later, there will be an uprising, uh, and there's something that's done about it. What I actually said is, with only one major exception, no polity has achieved what passes for full democracy uh, without also generating a written constitution. Um, I did try and choose my words with some care. But, of course, you're absolutely right. Um, uh, In the sense that there's all sorts of problems and black holes here. And I do think that getting something written down or online or on Facebook where people have a clearer idea of the system, the system, um, is good. I mean, I do think civic education, if only about the limitations of democracy, and there's always limitations, uh, is good. Knowledge is good. Um, And I think there's all sorts of evidence about how a lack of a written constitution has in some ways, in some ways, held Britain badly back. Let me give two ways. Um, One of the things that happened with written constitutions was that states became increasingly concerned to spread literacy not necessarily among women, but certainly among the adult male population because they had to read. They had to read these texts if you wanted them to work. Um, I don't think, though historians have never really picked this up, I don't think it's an absolute surprise that actually compulsory schooling comes to Great Britain very late, much later than in most other parts of Europe. Not until 1870 uh, do you get Parliament enforcing education for all. And I think that's partly because there wasn't the same need for literacy, because there wasn't a written constitution, and so you didn't care. Also, I think um, the way that the UK electorate increasingly uh, falls behind Uh, other European states as the 19th and early 20th century progresses. Uh, In 1914, when uh, people go into the First World War here, uh, Britain, the UK, has the second narrowest electorate in the whole of Europe. Um, So, you know, you need more information. Um, and I think talking about these things and as a way of discovering what the black holes are would be very appropriate, uh, though as soon as one says that, the number of vested interests that might be mobilised against it um, also becomes clear. Okay, well, time is up. Let me just remind you again that um, Mr. Colton's book is... Oh, sorry. Uh, sorry. 
But I would just like to end by thanking her very much for the courtesy of the erudite and rich historical treatment. I think you said at one point that we need to be properly informed about these questions, and there's no doubt that we are better and more properly informed than we were before the report. Thank you very much.